So it's about quality and quantity of academic language. And these little shifts that leaders can be aware of too when they're listening and watching and observing in classrooms. If the teacher's the only one talking in sentences, we have a problem. How are students gonna develop the language if they don't use it? Education Uncharted is a show from Propello, a K-12 teaching and learning platform that helps districts and teachers give every student a first-class learning experience. I'm your host, Amanda Bratton, exploring the stories of courageous educators that have broken out of the status quo to chart new paths and boldly innovate in the ever-changing landscape of education. Today's guest is Sarah Otto, the author of the book, The Language Lens for Content Classrooms. Sarah is a two-time recipient of the AmeriCorps Award for National and Community Service as a classroom teacher in urban classrooms. She is also a former lead of the Bill and Melinda Gates Professional Development Redesign Project, ELL Teacher Leadership Network. In our conversation today, we're going to uncover best practices for learning accommodations, discuss how the work of learning languages starts with the teacher, and how educators and administrators can work to build learning communities where every student belongs. I'm wondering, maybe you can dig in to just your history as an educator. What was it in your life that encouraged you to become an educator? And how did you start that journey to launch the Equity Language and Literacy Company? Yeah, it's funny. I actually studied fine arts and gender studies and psychology in my undergrad. But then I said, what am I going to do with that? information. So I started teaching art in an after-school program at Milwaukee Art Museum on the lake and really enjoyed working with students, which came so natural to me because I'm the oldest of four. My youngest sister has significant special needs, both craniofacial birth defects, physical disabilities, and learning disabilities. So again, this kind of seamless transition into teaching just came really natural to me. And soon after I started teaching in this after-school arts program, I went back and got my general education teaching license and was a third and fourth grade teacher for many years. Tell me a little bit more about your experience of doing that work in the art museum that kind of Mm. triggered your desire to transition into the world of education. Yeah. So thinking back as a young 22 year old, what am I going to do with my life? That's where I was at. And for me, it was working with students around creativity that really sparked teaching for me. While the focus was art and looking at art and making art, it was really about the spark of seeing kids light up around loving to learn. To me, that's what it's all about. What I do now, I mean, I integrate arts into professional learning a little bit. However, it's the creative act, teaching and providing professional learning and whatever level you're working at to me is just, it ignites me. It taps into my source energy around how do we help improve people's lives and how do we help collectively improve what's going on this planet? So how did you then take the experience there and mm-hmm. your time teaching in Milwaukee, what was it that launched you into that equity and language and literacy space? What were you seeing? What were you experiencing that kind of encouraged you to move into that area of expertise? Back when I was teaching in Milwaukee Public Schools, my first several years of teaching, I was also getting my master's degree in curriculum and instruction. 
and looking at issues of equity in urban education. And I could see even before I started my graduate studies, Amanda, that I was from a very different background than my students were at, racially, ethnically, linguistically. Even though I grew up as a free lunch kid myself, living in lower economic strata, I had not had the experiences that my diverse students had. And so that mismatch of how can I best meet their needs if I'm not even from a background like theirs was propelling to me. It was a propellant to really become better as a person. A lot of my students on the South side of Milwaukee, when I taught there, if not all of them were bilingual in Spanish from different Caribbean and Central American places. And that really lit me up because even though like many people, I had high school language, I had Spanish language classes. I certainly didn't have the level of bilingual biculturalism that the fourth grade teacher across the hall did in the bilingual program. So I was the monolingual teacher at the time. I said, I want to be bilingual. I want to be able to communicate in this whole other way. And also I want to be able to experience what my students experience by adding on another language. So it's a choice for me. I know that I'm a voluntary language learner, right? And so many of our students, they're not at all. They're involuntary. You have to learn English whether you want to or not. Yeah, it's not a straight line, but that brought me to Latin America. I decided to live and teach in Puerto Rico for several years and worked outside of where the cruise ships come in. I'm talking way on the other side of the island, on the south side, where there's not a lot of English speakers outside of the school that I worked in, and really tried to understand what that was like to be a linguistic minority. And that just really brought me into the field of ESL. When I came back to the mainland, I got my ESL and bilingual license. I never looked back. I've just always been in this space of multilingualism, multiculturalism, and supporting all teachers. I kind of work towards the teacher that I was, Amanda, when I was in that classroom and I didn't know how to connect with those kids. That's what I'm trying to impart in schools. Fantastic. So you've launched this company, Confianza. Your website defines Confianza as a cultural concept, meaning mutual respect and trust. And it further goes on to explain that respect mm -hmm. changes the status quo and communities are built on trust. So can you tell us a little bit about Confianza and how you are showing up to do that work for communities of teachers and learners? So again, it goes back to my story and having been an ESL specialist and coach in different spaces after my experience in Latin America, Amanda, and I could see that there's a specialized knowledge that ELL, MLL, ESOL, whoever we want to call them, these language specialists have to support language learners. And it's just really not good enough, in my opinion. Like we don't need to have a master's in ESL. We don't need to have a certification in ESL to reach all learners. Those special, extremely diverse group of students that are language learners are in classrooms throughout the whole day. So when they're not with their language specialist, they really still need to have access mm -hmm. and opportunity to the general education classroom. So that's really my mission is every teacher needs to have an equity-based mindset and every teacher needs to be able to integrate language and literacy into their classroom. And that essentially supports all learners because we're all academic language learners. And of course, by proxy, it supports our multilingual learner group as well. So tell me a little bit more about academic language learners. How is that different from an English language learner? What does that mean? I think that might be a new term for mm -hmm. some of our listeners. Sure. And it's a term I use a lot. And it's a term that we've refined and developed on my team here at Confianza because we realized that 
a lot of general education teachers and instructional leaders were like, oh, those aren't my students. I don't need to worry about them. Those are the students on the caseload of the ESL teacher. It's like when we know that, yes, the ESL teacher or language specialist, whatever we want to call them, has specialized skills and needs to provide really specific accommodations for these students, we all need to actually have inclusive classrooms that work for all learners. Okay, so academic language learning means that all students are learning reading, writing, listening, and speaking. And across the United States, whether you're adopting Common Core standards or not, chances are you have listening and speaking standards. Chances are you have reading across the curriculum, writing across the curriculum standards. But yet a lot of teachers haven't either A, been taught that way as students themselves, or B, been trained that way to think about not just their content area, but actually how to use the language of their content area. What you're helping to broaden an understanding of is that you can be teaching all students the ways to apply English language concepts Mm -hmm. in a science class or in a social studies class. And that in so doing, we're improving our academic language, right? Because we're all learning the concepts and the domain-specific words for all the things that we're trying to get through. And maybe not even domain-specific. Maybe it's more just like higher-level stuff that we don't usually use in our verbal communication. And now I'm reading this, Mm -hmm. and I don't even know what that means, but it's not a science word because I saw it in history too. So through your work, you're supporting teachers in learning how to do this better. Mm -hmm. Yes, and we often get so sucked into the specialized language of our content area. You mentioned science. So for example, mitosis, cells, whatever that topic is, that's already there in the textbooks. That's already there in the instructional materials. What you're talking about is what we promote, which is what are those invisible aspects of language that goes across the entire school day that maybe all students haven't had access to, whether you're multilingual or not. So for example, compare, contrast, analyze, justify, how to persuade, how to sequence. Language is power, right? If you have control and command and proficiency in oral language and speaking and writing language, that's gonna be power for your life, not just for school. So that's what it's about. It's about not just stand and deliver and transmit information, whether you're a science teacher or first grade teacher, it really doesn't matter. It's really universal. It's more about how can students co-construct that language learning of that content so that they can be empowered, they can be successful, they can be thinkers, they can tell us what they know. It's really about putting students in the driver's seat more and more. Awesome. So you've written a book, The Language Lens for Content Classrooms. What are some other pieces that you dive into? Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about some of the ideas that you're conveying there. For those of us who are like, oh, this is a really interesting conversation. I didn't know that this book even existed and I want to know more before I go out and buy it. Like, <laughs> tell me a little bit more about what's happening in that conversation and maybe some pieces of that conversation that teachers can take away and apply like immediately. So the Language Lens for Content Classrooms is a guidebook that I originally wrote and published the first edition of in 2019. The second edition is coming out in June. It's going to be updated for COVID pandemic learnings and also have a whole strand for instructional leaders because it's not enough just for teachers 
to know how to support all learners. So with that said, the language lens is really about operationalizing a lot of the things that we're talking about already. So a couple key pieces. Number one, identity. So making sure that all students feel included and that their identities are integrated into classrooms, that it's not just a monolingual, monocultural perspective. The second piece is about making that language visible. So we talked about, for example, the language of science or the language of compare contrast, the academic language that students need to be successful in school. And number three is that student ownership piece that we touched on a little bit, which is how do we not make language learning such a complicated thing? Why can't we make it easier for all teachers to understand whatever language proficiency levels that state uses that you're in, everybody should understand how languages are learned especially students. So how can students understand their own language development process? And again, this is great for both multilingual learners and all of our learners. So for example, one of the things in the book, and this is a takeaway for your listeners, one of the things that we talk about that I do with schools in our professional development programs is how to demystify what it means to have command of language. So speaking and writing, right? Those are the main outputs. We speak and we write. If you can't speak and you can't write proficiently, as I mentioned earlier, you may not be able to a, express your opinion and be successful in school and in life. So we've got to create active learners. So speaking and writing, a way of demystifying that is helping kids see, did I speak in words today? Did I speak in phrases? Did I actually speak in complete sentences? Or better yet, did I speak in more than one complete sentence? Did I even speak in a paragraph? So it's about quality and quantity of academic language. And these little shifts that leaders can be aware of too when they're listening and watching and observing in classrooms. If the teacher's the only one talking in sentences, we have a problem. How are students going to develop the language if they don't use it? Absolutely. Ah, so it's a support of discourse, right? It's a way to help students learn how to speak complete thoughts, right, in sentences that are cohesive, but also communicate clearly what it is that they are thinking or needing or imagining, whatever. And then it's developmental. It's like we're so obsessed with proficiency in this country. And in fact, you don't get to be proficient until you're developmentally there. So honoring students' language development and saying, okay, if you're trying to speak like a scientist or write like a scientist in science class, once again, what does that look like? Let's look at a mentor text. Let's look at an inquiry report from a real scientist. Let's analyze that text, do some close reading. What are the features of this text? It's not separate from the content that's already being taught. It's just teaching kids the invisible aspects. What is the language of science? How do you sequence, say, an experiment that you did? so that students can ask questions about it, they can demonstrate it on the summative assessments, but most importantly, they can enjoy learning. They have the language as the vehicle to really interact with the content. That's a super meaningful point. And I think that just recognizing that we're already, I think a lot of teachers are already doing this to an extent, but they might not be taking it full circle. So I'm wondering if you can touch on a few areas of the work that you're doing and the support that you're giving teachers and districts that are really pain points and are hard places to get over that hill to find success. I'd be happy to. And I think one of the biggest areas that my team and I are seeing hands down is student engagement and especially in this weird post-COVID space. So you mentioned discourse 
And you mentioned teachers already doing a lot of language development and literacy development in their classrooms, but they might not have that language lens. They might not be aware of it and go, oh, what's working with that? What's not working? They're just focused on the proficiency scores of the content. So let me break it down. I was in classroom last week, several classrooms doing learning walks with the principal and the teachers that we were working with, what we were looking for was structuring groups. So instead of just saying to students, turn and talk, and they're going to just acquire the language magically. It doesn't work like that. We all know we need to be set up for success. And students were on Zoom many in many cases, isolated socially and emotionally. And many of them maybe never had or forgot any experiences they had with meaningful cooperative groups. And by the way, that's really required for the global workplace that we're in, being able to meaningfully connect with each other. Like we're, I hope we're doing now, right? And I think that's the biggest pain point that we've seen and that I've been measuring in my work. Language development doesn't just happen. And language is talking to each other and writing and communicating. And so we have to teach how to do it. It's that explicit instruction. Even high school teachers, oh, I don't need to, my students don't need group roles. Oh yeah, it's not working. Was this your intention that they're just sitting there looking at each other or talking about TikTok? Like that, I don't think those were the objectives of the lesson. So let's back up and let's practice it in professional development. And then we go, oh, as teachers, we need that. Okay, our students need that too. So let's script out and let's better yet, let's co-create with the students what it looks like, what it sounds like, what it feels like to have a classroom community where everybody contributes and everybody belongs. I think that it's so important to have that purposeful teaching how to do things that even to youth as an educator, you might think you've done this for, I'm teaching 10th grade, you've done this for 11 years, right? Like you've done this a long time. And we have to remember that those expectations are not necessarily very realistic. Kids are coming from all over. The way that one teacher taught it might not be the same way that another teacher taught it, or maybe it's never been taught, right? And you're just bringing in, here's what I think I got to do, or here's what I have to do. And I'm not really going to do it because there weren't any guidelines. (laughs) So we're going to talk about TikTok, right? Yeah. And I think too, it is important to realize that as I talk about a lot, is putting yourself in students' shoes. You can never fully walk in somebody else's shoes, but you could try to have some empathy to say, what would it feel like? What are my students going through? What is that one student going through who I can't reach? Or collectively, was I unclear about that task? Ooh, I was. If I was a student, I might've started talking about TikTok too, for example. How can I improve? I don't have all the answers. I'm always improving and trying to reflect on that. And I think in education, we're just trying to retrofit to where we were pre-COVID when in fact we really need to step back and have more time for reflection. And like we're doing, unpack, what can we do to engage students? Their brains are different than our brains because of everything that's been happening and all the technology. What we used to do even three, five years ago, never mind 20, 10, is very different than what needs to happen today. So it's about really coming from the student's perspective as much as possible. I know that there are a lot of best practices, tons of theories that are introduced into the world of education. Almost, I feel like it's almost on a daily basis. There's something new popping up. Oh, maybe we should do this, or here's a new way of thinking about something. But I've also seen as an educator just how hard it can be to turn those best practices or those theories into action, and then to get everybody else on board 
to do that, to say, here's this new approach and we're going to we're going to go for it. Do you have any advice for educators or administrators that are looking for ways to help usher in these new types of best practices? How do we help move things forward? I couldn't agree more. There's so much coming at educators. Never mind the attack on education happening in different places feels just volatile. And then initiative overload that can happen at district levels and school levels. And then the classroom level, just Google it or just Pinterest it, or there's just, oh, I want to see something. Like, and, and then I also, what I also see with that, I don't know if you agree is, and I've worked and trained publishers, so this is not any judgment, but it's like, oh, just another program. Let's get another program that'll fix it. And we know there's no silver bullet for education because we're not cranking out a product. We're working with humans. And so I always like to say it's about people, not programs. So for leaders, I find the leaders that I've worked with as a professional coach and then previously as a teacher in school and district-based positions, the leaders that have been the most effective have been the most focused. So they say, this is our focus, as opposed to these are our 12 areas of focus or and aligning everything towards that. Does the data support that? Number one, that's hopefully is what the student need is pointing towards. Say it's improving writing. Say it's just improving writing across the board. Okay. That's our focus. How are we all going to point towards that? What resources are we going to use? Bringing teachers into that process is essential. Professional development research shows that teachers need choice. Teachers need voice just as much as students do, if not more. So co-designing professional development with teachers, really leveraging that local expertise. People call me an expert and I say, whoa, I push back. I said, we're all experts. Let's all work on it together. So instead of relying on, say, another outside provider, even like myself, saying, how can we use that as a resource to support our goals that we're already focused on? So it really is more of a homegrown answer, a homegrown response with support and then not only are feeling guided by somebody who's done this before and has done a lot of research to know that, okay, these are the directions that we want to go, but we're building it together with the understanding of the needs of our students and our community. That can be a big breakthrough when I feel that I have ownership with guidance. Yes. And I think that goes back to time. So we touched on time earlier, right? And we know that educators need time to talk about teaching. We know that educators need structures to talk about students and have students lead the parade, not just lesson planning. It's all connected. So we need professional learning communities. Again, we need that focus from the top. I think what I'm hearing from you that I completely feel is one of the biggest issues in education today is stripping educator power. And so if we're looking for the outside program, consultant, model, before we really do the internal conversations and collaboration and looking at what, what our community needs and who our community is, then we're effectively not providing that collective efficacy. And we know that collective efficacy, you know, all the research shows that is a driver for school improvement. We've got to all be on board together and like you said, feel part of that process. And that will translate to the students. If teachers don't feel power, we know students pick up on everything and we don't, certainly don't want that for our youth. Maybe you can give us just some examples of some successful adoptions of some of the ways that you have talked about helping teachers improve their academic language learner experience. Can you just give me a few examples of how you've seen that in classrooms or in across a district? Absolutely. So 
like I said, throughout our conversation, it's not just about support, supporting and training teachers, but it's about a sustainable homegrown kind of model. So the best kind of success stories that I can talk about involve working with school leaders, district leaders, and teacher leaders. And that's the approach that we take at Confianza. The one and done for teachers does not transfer to practice without the other pieces in place. It doesn't mean that we need to do that, but it means that there's gotta be a vision, right? There's gotta be a plan and there's gotta be ongoing support for everyone. So one example that I can think of right now is an ongoing relationship with the school that's K-8. This one comes to mind because the principal came to me and said, we want to do a book study. You want to use your book. Why? Not because we think you have the answer, but because what you're talking about is what all the research says anyways. So this isn't like anything new. It's just what I try to do is demystify again, like I said that before, demystify the research. Here's one way to do it. And let's make it simple and palatable for teachers who might already feel overwhelmed. So that principle was really focused on getting kids to speak more. Again, we're coming back after COVID. It's been almost two years. Students are still just withdrawn. How do we get them to engage in learning more? And by proxy, how do we get the teachers to see how important it is to have students speak? That will help their writing. That will help their reading. That will help the love of learning. And so in that story, I can tell you that it's been really exciting because with that school-wide focus, we've been able to provide together with the leaders, targeted professional learning community support for grade level teams to look at their student data with that lens, to plan, and in many cases, adopt the instructional materials from publishers that aren't necessarily ready for the learners in front of them, and then go through cycles. Let's look at student work. How did they do? Did they reach the target language goals of words, sentences, and discourse level? What can we do to improve? And the best kind of success story that I like to talk about is just that, where there's a gradual release. So it's not relying on the outside consultant to lead because as I'm a coach, right? I believe being behind the scenes is more powerful and coaching the leaders to do the work so that they have the tools to keep things going. I'm wondering if you can give me like three or four quick, here's how I just listened to this podcast on my way home from work. And tomorrow I want to apply two or three or four of these things or think about like how I can build them in. What are some like quick, easy wins that as a teacher, I can go to my classroom tomorrow and be like, I'm going to try this. My favorite thing is to ask students what they need and to get their feedback of teaching. That can be a really vulnerable place to be as a teacher or as an administrator, but student voice in my opinion, should really be what is driving change, the classroom level, the school levels. For example, asking students for feedback. How did we do on this unit? What did you like about it? What did you not like about it? What can I do better as your teacher? Are you getting your needs met? Do you feel cared for? Do you feel respected? Now, a lot of those pieces that we know are precursors for academic learning, we just gloss over that social emotional, like it's something separate. When we can really bake it into our lessons, and another part of that is learning more about students' preferences and for multilingual learners, especially their language histories. We're required by federal law in U.S. public schools to check the box of, do you have another language at home? However, we don't often dig deeper and have those student and family level conversations that an interpreter can help with, of course, because they're you know, eligible for interpreters under federal laws. So if people don't know that, look into that too. 
But what I'm having a conversation like, oh, you're a newcomer. We have a huge influx of newcomers right now coming into our schools nationally, Amanda, right? So this is an easy thing to do. Try to set up an interpreter, try to set up a time and space. Doesn't have to be a big production, but talking with the student, talking with the family. Why are you here? What's your story? I'm here to support you. You may not feel comfortable sharing everything with me right away, but I want you to know that this is not just about academics, but we want you to feel part of the classroom. We want you to feel part of the school. We want you to feel part of your new country. And then I like to dig deeper. What do you know about English? Do you even like English? If kids are feeling turned off by school, <laughs> we have a lot of work to do and that's on us. So that real personal level, I know a lot of secondary teachers, and I was a secondary teacher myself, we often say, I have 120 kids on my caseload, I can't do that. Okay, then start small with one student or work with your ELL teacher to help partner with you on that. Because there's usually one or more students that keep us up at night and that we carry with us. How can you build bridges with that student? And how can you learn from that little case study to really help? get to know your other students or at least have that responsive lens for them. Fantastic. And I can do this even if I'm not an English teacher. Yes, please do. That's what it's all about. It's like, you, know, you have the power. You can do that. We're just humans talking to other humans. We may have a different language, but we can still care about the same things and talk about the same things. So on that note, I just want to congratulate you noted that your second edition of the Language Lens for Content Classrooms is coming out this summer. I want to give you a chance to talk about it a little bit more, share some stuff that might be some new additions so that we know what we're looking for when it comes out or even if we want to take a peek at pre-ordering. I'd love to know what new pieces of information you're going to bring to us. Sure. So let me just say for anyone interested in learning more at this time, you can go to Confianza's website which is ellstudents.com and ELL students stands for equity, language, and literacy, just to be clear. So ellstudents.com, you're going to see the guidebook on the first page. You can order as of today, which is in May, you can order the first edition that will be out of print in the next month, at which point about mid-June, if not earlier, you should be able to order the new one on Amazon and every major book platform. We'll also have an audiobook available within the year. So if you're an auditory learner, we have that coming. We also have an ebook that will be available as well this summer. And what's new about it is just really leaning into this. We need to communicate with each other. We need to back up and not just push forward. The COVID pandemic never happened. The COVID-19 pandemic impacted students of color and students from socioeconomic disadvantaged backgrounds far more than any other group. And 90% of our language learners are students of color. So the intersectionality between race, class, and language needs to really be examined, in my opinion, by all educators. We weren't always examining it before, or in other words, we weren't always ready to, but now we have to. And instead of just plowing forward, I really encourage both teachers, coaches, and leaders to really look at who's in our community, who's new in our community, who's coming into our community, and how can we make sure that they're centered in the learning? And so that means bringing families in. That means, again, at that classroom level, bringing student ownership in more and student voice. The other major thing that's very new 
in the book, that's not new to my work, is really pulling the curtain back on tips for coaches and leaders. So while the first book was really designed for language and content teachers used by any teacher K-12 and also in teacher prep programs for general education teachers and ELL teachers, this book keeps all that information, but it's updated and then adds information about COVID. But my favorite part is the spaces at the end of each chapter that gives specific guidance for instructional coaches and leaders, because we know we need them to set the scene and to make sure that students have access to what they need all day long, not just when they're with a specialized teacher or just one teacher in the school who happens to know how to do these, this kind of work. So that's what's new about it. Sarah, thank you so much. This has been really enlightening. I think that I was an English teacher in high school for many years, and I wish that I had some of this support when I was teaching, right? Because I did teach, I taught a lot of students whose, their first language is not English. And at that time, it was a lot of, I'm going to support you, but I don't really have a lot of guidance. And we're going to ignore the fact that you speak another language at home. As educators, we are all teaching students who are multilingual. And we need to make sure that we're attending to their needs and recognizing that in attending to those individuals' needs, we're also attending to everyone's needs as learners of the language that we speak every day. So I really appreciate the information that you've shared with us today. Best of luck as you get that next edition out into the world. Thank you so very much for being here today. So a few takeaways from today's show with Sarah Otto. Number one, we need to remember that language is power. When your students gain control and command of the English language, extraordinary opportunities open up for them. And if we want our students to get to that point of mastery, it's important that we engage them to co-construct language learning alongside us. Empowering our students and asking them to help us co-create a classroom environment that looks sounds, and feels like everyone belongs is the fastest path to success. Number two, the art and science of helping our students learn a language is no easy task. It takes consistent and sustained effort from every level. We can't forget that it's important to give our teachers voice and choice in this process so they too feel empowered to help shape the pathways that will guide our students' language learning journey. And remember that before we look to this outside world for help with this, through vendors or consultants or curriculum, we need to first do the internal work with our teachers, our students, and their families, as well as administration, to fully understand what it is that our community needs to be successful. Finally, it's important to remember that we're all learners, too all of us, no matter where we are in our lives and careers. As educators, we need to put ourselves in the shoes of our students. Put yourself in the position of being surrounded by people who aren't like you. Try to immerse yourself in environments where people don't speak your language. Maybe they don't have your viewpoints or perspectives. Try your best to experience life from another viewpoint. This can shape our practice and our ability to teach the learning of language to our diverse classrooms. As Sarah shares, at the end of the day, we are just humans talking to other humans. We may speak different languages, 
but we care about a lot of the same things. I'm Amanda Bratton. For more conversations with bold educators exploring uncharted territory, click the link in the show notes or visit propello.com backslash learn to learn more.